0: The following is a message by Dr. Howell Jones of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. We therefore give Thee thanks, O Lord our God, that Thou hast in and through Thy Son sown good seed in this fallen world. And we rejoice together in anticipation of the harvest that it is bound to yield. We give Thee thanks that Thou hast caused Thy word to take root in our hearts and lives. And our desire is uh, that we should be found bringing forth fruit that increases and remains to thy praise and glory. And we pray that this might be so for all who name the name of Jesus Christ in sincerity all round the earth, and thou wilt extend his kingdom and gather to him all for whom he died, that innumerable company. And we pray that even this day that goal might be furthered. Be pleased then to accompany those whom thou hast sent out into the harvest field from this seminary and grant that their labors might uh, yield uh, success to thy praise and honor. We commit to thee those who stand in need of thy help, comfort and strength, and guidance and direction, and we pray for those who are seriously unwell at this time that thou will draw near to them and bless them. Remember thy suffering church throughout the earth, and grant that with full assurance of faith, we might look forward to the coming again from heaven of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Increase within us that confident expectation and enable us to wait with endurance as we serve him. Give us then thine aid as we look into thy word. Pardon our sins. For Jesus' sake, amen. Be seated, please. Will you turn with me to the... 27th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 27, and reading from the second verse of the chapter to its conclusion, Isaiah chapter 27, verse 2, let us hear the word of God. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come... Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them? as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain? As their slayers were slain. Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing, for the fortified city is solitary A habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day... From the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thrash out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. May God bless to us his word. With these statements this section of the prophecy of Isaiah comes to a conclusion and it is indeed a complicated passage. You've only to look at the translations of it uh, to see from the variants that are employed both of single words and of words in association that real textual difficulties as well as interpretive uncertainties have to be encountered in considering this passage. And uh, here we are, and there's ten minutes and a little more in order to uh, demonstrate one's folly. Uh, Well, there's a safe rule. Whenever you come to something difficult in Scripture, proceed from the known to the unknown. Get some sort of solid ground under your feet and planks for your thinking in your mind. And we're able to do that without any difficulty or disagreement, aren't we? Isaiah 24 through 27 called Isaiah's apocalypse. His audio visual of the end of all things. When the Lord will come himself to save his people and to judge their foes. We've seen how that is anticipated in praise by the remnant of his people in the songs that are recorded in this particular section, 25 and 26. But then we also saw last time how prayer is also appropriate in view of the coming end. And we have supplications made on account of the need and the weakness and the sense of shame and failure of that remnant. So on the one hand there are songs that anticipate the already past tenses are used and there are statements expressed in the present tense which clearly indicate that the end is not yet, even for the remnant of the Lord's people. And we borrowed a statement from the verses that we've just read to help us with the difficult section in chapter 26, namely that the Lord keeps his people. And you may remember that we thought of the previous chapter in connection with the perseverance of the saints And the preservation of the Lord Himself. And so let's pick up that theme of preservation and see where it takes us as we look at this section before us this morning. Verses 1 to 6, I'm sorry, verses 2 to 6, clearly strike this note of preservation. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I keep it night and day. And what is referred to is not a city as previously, but a vineyard. And vineyard, of course, in Isaiah, inevitably, doesn't it? Brings to mind chapter 5 that vineyard that the Lord planted, cared for, watched over, and yet brought forth wild grapes. But here is a vineyard that is in clear contrast to that. This is pleasant. It is either beautiful or it is full of grapes that yield red wine. One of the difficulties in the text. But the keeper defends it, tends it, night and day. And not only that, he does so ready to leap into action against any assault or incursion made upon it. He's almost half waiting, hoping that briars and thorns might try to invade this vineyard in order that he might seize them and burn them all together. What a difference to Isaiah 5, where he calls for the briars and the thorns to invade the vineyard to make it desolate and totally unproductive. He's on the lookout then for any opposition, and yet not with implacable hostility because he says, with regard to these would-be invaders, would that they would not invade, but would that they be reconciled, or that they would make peace with me, make peace, and you remember that thou wilt keep him in peace, peace from the previous chapter, that repetition is here, repeated again but now not with reference to the believing remnant, now with reference to those who are the opponents of the Lord and his gospel and his people. If they would only submit and make peace, they would find a ready welcome from him as well. And he says they will come. There's no word for days. In chapter 27, verse 6, it almost translate, but it wouldn't be be, um, an intelligible way of doing it. Coming ones, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Those whom he invites will come. And this will be a vineyard that will fill the world with the fruit of God's grace and mercy. In the middle of this, he says, I have no wrath. That's a surprising statement, isn't it? Particularly when you call to mind Isaiah 5 and the way in which judgment is threatened against this vineyard. But now it seems that these are spared and they're not only spared, they're made productive and fruitful and a blessing and a benefit to the whole world. What's happened? How is that possible? That even those who broke the covenant and failed to live to God's praise and glory, yet they're spared as the end is anticipated by the prophet and those who gathered around him. So that wonderful, though this opening description is and it's a song, yet it raises a question. How can what it describes really come to pass? Seeing as sinners are involved. So there's preservation, but also a question. Well, now let's go on to this middle section, verses 7 through 11. And here the difficulties abound. Are, are, are How shall we describe it? What shall we call it? Well, it's a historical summary, isn't it? Verses 7 and 8 refer to God's people being smitten, but their opponents being smashed. God's people being slain but not as their opponents have been slain under the wrath of God. There's a distinction involved. However the terms are to be translated, there's a distinction involved in verse 7 and again then in verse 8. Measure by measure, little by little, some kind of differentiation is being introduced here and it's depicted by a contrast between wind forces. There's the devastating east wind, far worse than a gentler wind, which nevertheless expresses God's displeasure. Here's some difference. How can this distinction be made by a God who is going to intervene in justice? That's of the essence of the end of all things, isn't it? God will not intervene unjustly. How can he make this distinction? It's plain that he does so. Verse nine talks about the obliteration of a sharing and incense altars and a fortified city. Is it Jerusalem or is it the city of the world? One of the problems that has to be decided. We don't have to do it this morning. But what's clear from this historical section is that there's going to be a differentiation made when God intervenes justly. And as a result of that differentiation, there will be some who are spared and there are others who will not be. How can a just God do that? Temper his judgment when his people are sinful? Just like those who oppose him and them. Well, the answer, of course, is in verse 9. He does it by way of purgation. I use that word not because of its association with purgatory. I use it because it includes two things. It includes atonement and it includes purification there is a guilt that has to be atoned for and it's as a consequence of that guilt that those who stand under God's displeasure are purified. And there in that twelfth verse what you have is an indication that the exile anticipate it is not going to be the end for Israel but it's going to be an outpouring of God's wrath that isn't final. And it's not going to be final because there is going to be atonement made by one who actually bore his curse in full. The full toll of God's wrath and appeasing his wrath placated it, satisfied it so that a way was made for his grace to reach his sinful chosen so we begin with preservation. And now we go through, let's say, purification. But remember, atonement before inward purification. But that's what follows. Because verse 9b says, He makes all the stones. Who's the He? It's Judah, it's Israel. Now turning on the sins that they've committed. And putting them to the sword because they've been reconciled to God. So there's preservation and there's purification. It's like John 15, isn't it? I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit he takes away. Every branch in me that bears fruit he purges it. That it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. Well, what about the last two verses? The word perfection came to mind. I didn't look at it. Look for it. Two pictures the harvest, the sacred feast, two groups of people the Jews and the Gentiles from Assyria through to Egypt, and those who are perishing in Assyria, through to Egypt. God's and his people's enemies, they're going to be gathered too. And on the one hand, there's going to be a great harvest of the remnant of his covenant people as they're gathered one by one. However we think of the future of Israel, there's no future for any Jew apart from the death of the mediator. And any and every Jew reclaimed is brought into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only they, there are other sheep, not of that fold. And they are going to be brought too. They will hear this great trumpet blast that brings them, that announces to them the day of Jubilee, the beginning of a year of rest, a year of plenty. A Sabbath in fellowship with God that is an antitype of heaven to come. That's the picture that we have here. And you see, that to call this apocalyptic isn't accurate if we think that here we have apocalyptic thinking. It's not apocalyptic thinking. Apocalyptic thinking disdains history, doesn't it? Prophecy is connected with history. Because what God speaks, He works out in time and space, in actual events. And throughout history, what He did with Israel was to judge it and yet deliver it. And what He's done with the church is the same until that day when He will come finally and it will be harvest home. And it will be the endless Sabbath of everlasting bliss. That's what Isaiah anticipates. That's what we are to anticipate. And meanwhile, we're to sing of it. And yet we're to pray in the light of it. Thy kingdom come, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Be pleased, O Lord our God, to receive our thanks for this great plan that thou hast settled from all eternity. And we rejoice that nothing can stand in in the way of its complete and total accomplishment. Because Jesus Christ stood in the place of each of his people and bore the wrath that they deserved and provided the obedience that they could never provide. And in him we are safe, delivered from the wrath, admitted to heaven, made thy children and people. We pray that that great purpose might be advanced significantly, evidently, universally. For his sake, amen.